But if you would turn to the book of Jude again, Jude chapter, uh, here, chapter 1 of Jude, verses 20 through 23. Jude 20 through 23. We're near the end of this letter, and you might have noticed this morning we're near the end of the first book of Psalms in the morning, so in the next few weeks you'll notice a change both in the morning and evening studies and sermon series. But I want to remind you of the context and also the title of this sermon series, Contend for the Faith. You might even notice it's again printed on your bulletin, in this case, How to Contend for the Faith. And of course the context here is a reminder by Jude that there will be false teachers. And he's already said, here's what they'll teach, here's what they'll practice, here's what they will look like in the end. These things will be revealed to you if you remain in the faith. And he's also said, here are the consequences, both the consequences for them, where they're going to end up in eternity, and the consequences on the church, that if we were to follow those false teachers, there would be division, and there would be exposing of sins, and there would be perhaps even churches that might fold because of these things. And so he says, look out for them. This is what he's been doing in the last few verses. Look out for them. Look out for the teaching that they teach. Look out for the fruit of their ministry, which often includes immorality and greed and rebuking or a disregard for authority. And he's reminded them in verses 17 through 19, he says, this is part of God's plan. So be prepared. Be encouraged by knowing that there are false teachers, that if there aren't false teachers, be aware that this is not God's plan for the church in this age. But if there are false teachers, this too is part of God's plan. Be prepared for this. But what do we do about it? How do we contend for the faith with this reality? Well, here's where verses 20 through 23 really hit that particular aspect of this teaching. Jude writes, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So we consider these words. Let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand this word. Help us to apply this word to our hearts and lives and to act upon it by the power of your spirit. I pray, Lord, that the teaching that is from this place would be consistent with your own and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts might be pleasing in your sight. I pray that if that is not the case, that you will let these things fall to the ground and never come back. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this last week, it's been a week now, my wife put me on a diet. And I'm counting calories for the first time in my life. It's a totally new experience for me. I've never done it, never wanted to do it. I never really wanted to do it last week either. She knows this. And there's this app on my phone. And it uses artificial intelligence coordinated with the data that I provide to it. I had to answer a bunch of questions, and then each day I'm to log in all the things that I consume that have calories. 
One of the questions that it asked was whether or not I led a sedentary or active lifestyle. And it gave several different choices. Now, fortunately, I don't remember what all the choices were, so I can't tell you which one I selected. But Jude's contention in this letter is this. There should not be sedentary, spiritually sedentary Christians. There should only be Christians that act upon the truth of God's word. And even if they are sitting and listening to the preacher, it's an active engagement with the preacher because they are testing his words to see if they are true. Even if they are learning in a Bible study, it is not just a passive learning where they hear what is taught and leave and never to dress it again. It is an active learning where they are contending for the faith. It doesn't mean we sit around pondering what false teachers look like. It doesn't mean we just sit there and ponder what the truth of God's word is. It means we're prepared to do something about it. And so he does tell us particularly two aspects of how we as Christians, not just the pastor or the elders and deacons, not just the Sunday school teachers or the leaders of the church, but note here, this letter is to those who are called beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. In other words, all believers, all true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are called to do the things that Jude asks us to do here. First of all, the one command in this first section of verses 20 through 23, keep yourselves in the love of God. And secondly, we'll look at the responsibility we have to others within the body. First of all, this is keeping yourselves in the love of God. How do we do this? How do we keep ourselves? Now, it seems kind of strange that he would tell us to keep ourselves in God's love. Because remember, in verse 1, I just read, it says, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Christ Jesus. So in other words, there's this nexus, this uh, what we tend to think is paradoxical but is not in Scripture, is God's responsibility, his sovereignty in keeping believers in his love until the day that Jesus comes back and all things are put in their place. At the same time that we see God's sovereignty in keeping his people, Jude tells us we're also supposed to keep ourselves in God's love. Now, how in the world can we do that? He gives us three ING words or participles in which this must take place. It's not necessarily uh, evident here in the scripture that we're looking at, but in our ESV translation, they, they are all ING words, but they're all submissive to that term, keep yourselves in the love of God. The first way we do this is building yourselves up with your holiest faith. Building yourselves up with your holiest faith. This idea of building up. When we're building something, and there's a lot of building going on in Myrtle Beach, if you hadn't noticed. And down the road, just, just down the road, they've been building these big uh, condo buildings 
Uh, down where I live, they've been building uh, a new uh, complex of uh, Publix, and uh, now it's going to be a 7-Eleven at the opening of that uh, place. Down Postal Way, they've already taken down all kinds of trees, and now they're going to build something else there. They're building and building and building. But what does it mean to build up in the context of the church? It doesn't mean necessarily a physical structure, does it? It doesn't mean that necessarily we're going to go to somebody's house and start building a barn in their backyard. It means that we're going to build ourselves up in this way, with your holiest faith. Now, what is our holiest faith? Now, we could look at that in many different ways, but of course, one of those is a reminder here that God wants us to live holy lives. This is so very important here in the context of the book of Jude. Because these false teachers that come in, when their lifestyle and what they are teaching is exposed, often it includes immorality of one sort or another, particularly in many cases sexual immorality. And so he says, build yourself up with your holiest faith. That is, most set apart to be used of God for his service. This is also your holiest faith. What does it mean to have faith? It means that it's built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. It is built on a foundation of trusting in the word of God. And the practice we do in order to have a holy faith by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can't have it on our own, but through the power of our spirit, how do we build up both ourselves and others in the church? Well, by the basics. Reading the scripture, praying, worshiping together, encouraging one another, fellowshipping with one another, all of those things. Building yourselves up in this manner helps to keep ourselves in the love of God. So there are two ways in which we do this, building ourselves up. First of all is the personal responsibility. The responsibility we have to be in the word. The responsibility we have to be amongst the fellow believers in worship. The responsibility we have to use the gifts that the Spirit has given us for the building up and edification of the church. This is our personal responsibility as we keep ourselves singular in the love of God. But there's also a corporate responsibility. It says to keep yourselves plural by building yourselves up with your holiest faith. In other words, it's not just what I'm doing for myself, it's also what we're doing amongst the body. We together are to be in the word. We together are to be praying. We together are to do the things that God wants us to do in building up one another. We're building ourselves up with the holiest faith. I think, Wayne, there's somebody at the door back there. The second thing that we're supposed to do, the second ING word, is praying in the Holy Spirit. Notice what it says, Build yourself, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? It means to pray by faith. It doesn't mean, as some would say, pray in tongues, because Paul himself says not everyone has the gift of tongues. 
It can't mean that because this is to all believers. It can't mean that there's some special type of prayer out there that super Christians somehow can do that are super spiritual because that's nowhere in Scripture. But when it says it's praying in the Holy Spirit, first of all, it's a mark of your own faith. You see, if we are to be keeping ourselves in the love of God, we should be using the means of grace that God has given us. One of those means of grace is prayer. If we go about our lives never praying, never asking God's blessing upon us, never joyfully, gratefully praising him for what he has done for us, never praying the scriptures for the church, never considering the needs of God's people or my own needs, never honestly bringing before the Lord all of the things that I have on my mind for his grace to come to me. What is my faith? What is it if I never pray and yet I find myself finding difficulty many times to pray. Prayer is hard. It's not an easy task. How many of you don't wrestle with your prayer life? And yet here, Jude has to remind the church, one of the ways in which we keep ourselves in the love of God is by our personal prayer life, by the means of grace that God has given us. After all, how many commands in Scripture, not only Paul, not only Jesus, but throughout the Old Testament as well, talk to us about praying to God, bringing our requests to him, praying for one another, all those things. It's a mark of my own faith. But it's also a mark of a church's faith. I don't know what I'm going to do about our Wednesday morning prayer meeting. We're down to about seven people that come on a regular basis, and many of them can't come every week. I don't know, should I change the time? Should I change the emphasis? There's always a temptation for a pastor to say, nobody's coming to this event, let's just scrap it. But it's so important for the church to pray together. It's crucial. It's a mark of a church's faith. You see, here it says... Keep yourselves, not yourselves individually alone, although that's part of it, but keep yourselves corporately in God's love by praying in the Holy Spirit. When we're praying in the Holy Spirit, that means at times we're praying the words inspired by the Holy Spirit in Scripture for the church. Sometimes it means we're praying for the needs of the church. Sometimes it means we're praying for God's will to be done, whatever that will is in the times that are uncertain. But praying together as a church, it's hard, it's difficult, it's the least attended event in almost every church in America. And yet it is crucial that we pray together to keep ourselves in the love of God. Thirdly, awaiting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life. Again, we look at this word and we say, well, that sounds like a passive thing. We're just sitting back and waiting after all. You know, this, this is like the sports fan who's, who's rooting for his favorite football team and is just waiting for the quarterback to throw that pass and get the receiver down across the line for a touchdown. The spectator doesn't have anything to do with it, does he? Sometimes we think that that eager expectation, that waiting is just sitting, waiting for Jesus Christ to come. But there are wise people who say, 
If all we're doing is spectating, then we're no earthly good to others. In other words, this is an active waiting, an eager expectation. This is a waiting that reminds us that we are waiting with the faith that we have in the promises of God to take place. We come with an, an assurance that Jesus really is coming back, that God's people really will be saved in the end. And because of that, we're acting upon that waiting by obeying God's commands and doing the things that he wants us to do. And of course, what are we waiting for? First of all, his mercy to me. After all, there's an individual component here. His mercy to me, his mercy. This means that a believer seeking to keep himself in the love of God is constantly aware of his need for God's grace. He's constantly aware of his need for God to have mercy on him because he's a sinner. And so this person, this individual, is a model of penitence, a model who, re, who models repentance for his children, his grandchildren, for those around him and for those in the community around him. He is, as he awaits the mercy of God, the final coming of Jesus Christ and the glorification of his body, he comes in a humility and a submission to Christ, modeling it to others until the day approaches. But it's not only individual awaiting the mercy, it's also the church awaiting the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, we can get this all wrong, and we can say that this means when things are tough in the world around us, we cower together in the basement of the church. Of course, we don't have a basement here at our church. Gather together in a different room of the church, and we're cowering, just waiting for God to have mercy on us so that we don't have to experience all the difficulties of this life. It means this. We're simply following God's commands, following God's word, praying together, building ourselves up together, reminding us again and again of the wonders of the glory that God would use the church to call others unto himself, using our gifts and our talents for the glory of God until the time that Jesus returns. It's an active waiting. The other thing you might have noticed through this is there is an interesting formula through here. Note these words again. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This is a Trinitarian formula. Every person of the Godhead is involved here. The love of God from before the foundation of the earth, having called us unto himself and kept us until the day of Christ. The wonderful Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sins and who has given us the word of God that when we pray in that spirit, we are convicted. Others around us may be impacted by what we are doing in the glory of God's spirit. And then Jesus Christ the mercy of Christ to come and fulfill the purpose and will of God for our salvation by his death of atonement on the cross. Sunday school this morning, I talked about artificial intelligence. It was just a drop-off point 
to talk about that particular topic and to think about it from a Christian perspective. But I was aware that automated cars are very likely coming. You know, those cars that drive themselves. You get in the car, you tell it where it's supposed to go, and you press some buttons or whatever you're supposed to do, and the car begins to go in the direction it's supposed to go. Who's responsible if that car strays in the other lane? Still, I think the laws would say that the person in the car is responsible. Now, that car is getting you where you're supposed to go, but the person in the car is still responsible for giving it the right directions and for making sure it's operating properly. This is like God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Jude tells us that God has kept us for Jesus Christ. Yet at the same time, he tells us, keep yourselves in the love of God. You see, we are kept for Jesus Christ, but we are also to keep ourselves in the love of God. These are not contradictory things. These are things working together in God's sovereignty and our responsibility. In other words, when God calls us to faith, we are to remain acting in faith as those who obey him and serve him because he has loved us. And therefore, we have responsibility, not only to ourselves, but to others. He says in verse 22, Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Remember the context. There are going to be false teachers in the church. They're going to be teaching you doctrines and teachings that are not consistent with God's word. They are even going to be leading people astray to lead lascivious lifestyles and to do things they ought not to do. And he says here in this context, first of all, look out for yourselves. Keep yourselves in God's love with your holiest faith, building yourselves up, praying in the Holy Spirit, awaiting the mercy of Christ, all those things. Now he says, what is our responsibility to others? The first is to show mercy to those who are doubting. This is a reminder that there are going to be those in the church who are doubting. There are going to be real believers in the church who waver and struggle. They may even, in their weakness, be tempted to follow those false teachers. What are we supposed to do? Well, the temptation is to turn them away. There's no room for doubt in the church. After all, we have the word of God. It's true. It's very clear. It's simple. It's sufficient for you. You should not have any doubts or fears. No, that's not the case. Scripture reminds us that there will be those who are weak in the faith. There will be those who wander. There will be those who struggle. There will be those who have all kinds of difficulties in their walk with the Lord. The other problem in the church is sometimes we have a failure to see these doubters. If we're to show mercy to those who are doubting, we should be on the lookout for them. Now, this is one of the things that's so tough. It's not just the responsibility of the pastor or the elder or the deacon or others. Sometimes you might make those individuals who are accountable to God for the welfare of the church, you might make them aware that somebody is struggling. But notice what we're supposed to do. Not lambast them for their failure to believe the proper doctrines and all the things that are in line. You're to show mercy to them. Because God has shown mercy 
to us. Apart from God's grace, we would not grow. Apart from God's grace, we would not understand. Apart from God's grace, we would not be kept on the path ourselves. Show mercy to those who doubt. The second thing he says is save others from fire. In fact, he says, or do so by snatching them away. What does he mean here? It's not these this is category. These aren't the ones who are just doubting. These are the ones who have submitted to the false teaching or have gone astray. These are the ones who may have, have seen all of the charismatic teachers out there that are saying things contrary to the word of God and have followed their teaching with all abandon. And he says, snatch them away. What does that mean? Have urgency. Have urgency in the situation. When someone has followed this teaching and gone this way, following the philosophies of this world captured by them, do what you can. Of course, we can understand. We can't personally save them. But this is an understanding that by God's grace, we're asking him with all of our might to save that person. And if circumstances allow to intervene on their behalf, to tell them the truth gently and yet firmly, to draw them back according to whatever we can do, even if it means if it's a loved one that we might discipline them, even if it means in the church that we might discipline them. Whatever it is, there is an urgency because we recognize their perilous condition. Notice again the word, save others by snatching them out of the fire. That means by all accounts, someone following a false teacher, false doctrines, false philosophies, somebody falling into a lifestyle of sin and destruction, these individuals by their actions and their professions, by all indications are telling us they were not the children of God. They are not on the way to God's path of eternity. And so he tells us whatever we can do in love and grace, try to snatch them from the fire. Imagine we had a young man or a woman that fell into a cult and were taken away from us. They were following false teaching, a completely different lifestyle, basically worshiping this false teacher, making them dependent upon himself. Who's responsible to act on that behalf? Is it the pastor? Is it the parents? Is it someone who specializes in removing people from cults and trying to get them deprogrammed? You might use all these individuals. They might all be important in this effort. But Jude says, it's the church. You yourselves. We all together have a responsibility to pray for, care for, build up, encourage so that those who are falling into terrible teaching, terrible lifestyle, will be snatched from the fire of hell itself. We have a responsibility to do what we can actively, not passively, but actively to others within the body. That's the second category. The third is this. Show mercy and fear to others. That's kind of interesting. Who is this third group? I think the first group 
are those who are wavering, those who are doubting, who may be tempted to follow the false teacher or other doctrines. The second group seems to be those who have been carried away by these false teachers, those who have been influenced to such a degree that they're going down the road of destruction. Who is this third group? I think this is the false teachers themselves. Are false teachers without hope? Are false teachers unable to be saved by God? No. It says we show both things to them. Mercy on the one hand and fear on the other. And yet with great wisdom and caution. Notice what it says to do. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This garment brings back different analogies or pictures in scripture. We read earlier from Isaiah where it talks about our righteousness being like filthy rags. God must wash us and remove those filthy rags from us. We read in Zechariah about the priest who had that filthy garment. And that filthy garment had to be removed from him so that he could serve as the anointed in that position in the, with the people of God. Here we're reminded that the, the Greek words for these things indicate that this garment is the inner garment of the individual. This kind of pollution is referring to the fecal matter of an individual. It's very disgusting. And it says when we're showing mercy and fear to this third group, I think they're false teachers. We hate the garment not just the sin itself. We hate everything that has been stained by sin and false teaching. In other words, we are so consumed with a love for God's truth and God's word that anything that contradicts it or has been stained by it, we have a hatred for so that we ourselves don't fall into that particular sin or false teaching. So how do we show mercy and fear? You demonstrate discipline. This is what discipline is for. We look at Matthew 18. We look at 1 Corinthians. If we look at other places that talk about discipline, Hebrews 12, for example, we're reminded that there is both a component of love and a component of discipline or responsibility or necessary things to be done so that that individual will know they can neither sin with impunity nor blaspheme the truth of God. And in that sense, we are showing that individual love and care by, on the one hand, reaching out to them that they might hear the truth of God and be converted. On the other hand, reminding them of the perilous nature of their path of destruction by leading sheep astray so that Jesus himself would say it would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than you, that you lead one of these little ones astray. Demonstrating this discipline is showing mercy in fear. Mercy and fear, both so that individual know the gravity of his situation, yet will know the love that you have for him, that you want him to experience the love of God. On the other hand, the mercy that you understand God has given the church by his grace, forgiving them of their sin, and the fear that we have and reverence for God that we might not fall into the same sin. 
In essence, he says this, our responsibility is to take spiritual issues seriously. Do we as believers really believe the church is more than a social club or an academic training center? Do we really believe it's more than just coming to a service once a week and going through the motions and going back and telling everybody how holy, holy we are? Or countless other things we might think of the church. The church is the bride of Christ. It's meant to be holy, without stain or blemish. The church has been redeemed by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. We must have a love for the church so much so that not only are we looking out for our own faith and our own keeping in the love of God, but we're looking out for others in the church because we love them, even as ourselves. Jude just said in verses 17 to 19, you're going to have false teachers, it's no surprise. The ancient prophets and the recent apostles confirm this as truth. In fact, Jesus himself talked about the false shepherds, the wolves who had come in to try and destroy the church. Last century, there were those who faced the, the terrible, destructive theology of liberalism, and it ruined the mainline church. This century, there is another theology called progressivism, which threatens the church with false doctrines, false philosophies, false practitioners of godliness, rank immorality being the end result of these things. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to sit by and cower in fear and wonder when God might deliver us from such teaching? Or are we going to look out for ourselves and show the love of Christ to the church? Are we going to live lives where we grow in Christ using the means of grace, the sacraments, the prayer, and the preaching of the word? Or are we going to sit back and do nothing? Are we going to stand and contend for the faith, acting upon the ways in which God wants to keep ourselves in the love of God, building ourselves up, praying, awaiting the mercy of God? Or are we going to just sit back and moan about what's going on around us? You see, Jude is saying here in this section, this is the reality. This is God's plan. There will be false teachers. There will be mockers. There will be scoffers, both in the church and outside the church. He says, do something about it. Act like a believer and seek to rescue those who are being captured. Let's pray. Father, we can't do this without your power and strength. Sometimes, Lord, we know that there, those who are captured may not come back. But Lord, help us to have the strength not only to be kept in your love, to be strong in the faith ourselves, but Lord, to reach out and seek by your grace and by the power you have given the church through the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit working through your word to make new creatures in Christ of those who have gone astray. And Lord, to reclaim those that you have called unto yourself who have fallen away, who have sinned and fallen into grave sin and yet by your grace will not be plucked up, plucked away forever, that you might use the church to reclaim them by the proclamation of the gospel, by prayer, and by all the avenues through which you claim people for yourself.
We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.